Pat says, uh, feeling compassion for the irony and Trent leading us in prayer for ears to hear the call of those in need while his little son calls for his daddy at the office door. <laughs> Love this church. I, I was missing, you know, in in person where we, we get all of uh, the, uh, the good uh, children, children voices in uh, the congregation. So thank you, Trent. And yes, thanks, Johnny Cash. Kevin, thank you. Peace of Christ be with you all. Amen. All right. We're going to continue in our series this morning uh, called Holy Rupture. And... Uh, the verse we're going to focus on is Matthew 16, 19. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. These are the words of Jesus in this kind of season right after Pentecost. I appreciate Trent's reading in the book of Acts where we see that the things that happened to Jesus happened to the disciples and the things that Jesus uh, did, the disciples do. And there's this invitation by Jesus of, I am entrusting really the authority of bringing heaven to earth to you all. And this, this concept of Jesus's entrustment of authority to people, to uh, the disciples, I think is is a big rupturing moment in in the movement of our religious understanding and some of the proverbs or the maxims or the mantras that have been helpful to me i want to um share uh with with you all and we've looked at how there's this 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 movement of when we when we grow up and mature from don't touch the stove it's hot to learning how to cook to becoming a chef to owning a restaurant and i see this this passage of i'm i'm giving you the keys of the kingdom is like jesus saying i'm giving you the keys of the kitchen like the restaurant is yours uh, I want, I expect you to cook in it and create nourishing meals for the world. And uh, we saw John's gospel move from this perspective of obedient servant to faithful friend to shared union. And that this progression is, is really important and encouraged and seen as the goal. So... I want us as a church and as, as, as people in this community to take responsibility for the authority that Jesus is entrusting with you, that it's necessary to actually take responsibility for authority that Jesus entrusts, to not as the one bury it in the ground because you're afraid of... Um, not meeting the owner's expectations, but that we take Jesus seriously on this entrustment, the handing of the keys to the kitchen, that we too learn how to make nourishing meals for us in the world. So 
here's some other uh, words that we've had over this, this series, that life is a matter of discernment, not a matter of obedience. And um, I'm, I'm playing off that word of obedience because a lot of times religious communities stop with obedience and not move towards wisdom. So the goal is not, did you follow orders? The goal is wisdom that manifests itself in love. Um, and the mere following of directions does not <laughs> like produce wisdom and or shared union. The goal, uh, Peter says, is to participate in the divine nature, the shared union that John talks about. To be a co-heir and co-reigner means you learn how to operate with the wisdom of the triune God in the world. So this brings us to this, this passage of binding and loosing, which is rabbinic language for making decisions about the text. Now, this is all uh, in chapter five of our series on gender, sexuality, and faith. It's chapter five called Binding and Loosing. And I'm gonna, I wanna explore some of those, those ideas here, but you can refer back to that um, if, if any of this information kind of sparks your imagination and you wanna know what other resources you can look at, they are all there. Um, a year ago, this is, this is a year ago, um, quote from Rabbi Cohen that he had on his Facebook page. Rabbi Cohen, if you remember, is Rabbi Emeritus at Bet Shalom Congregation, our neighbor uh, who we do a lot of interfaith work with. And this was about a unanimous, a unanimous decision with the Minnesota congregations uh, to say we're not going to do in-person worship in the synagogue. And this, this quote stood out to me. Unanimity is rare and often unhealthy in Jewish discussion and debate. However, on this we all agree. We choose life. Bekuot nefesh in Hebrew, the saving of, a, of life, is of paramount importance in our tradition saving one life as is if we save the entire world. Now, this is, uh, you know, part of Jewish tradition that uh, I think is an amazing gift to the world is the preservation of debate and difference. So this is common with Jewish tradition. There's always, uh, there's not one view. There's, a wrestling and there's diversity of views and in the Talmud you, you've got kind of the preservations of all of the debates and why do you preserve the debates because you can see it's about wrestling with the text and developing wisdom for what the meal is we're going to create now not just serving up leftovers from thousands of years ago but learning what was the mindset? What were the questions? What were the meals that were being made and why? And then how can we take that and make good meals today? So I love, I love that posture. And I want to do a few case studies in this binding and loosing so you know that this language is actually rooted 
in a very long Jewish history and tradition of binding and loosing. Um, and what you'll see on the bottom is a spectrum and say to have a restrictive view of a law is to bind, uh, to have a permissive view of the law is to loose. Sometimes this is called to forbid bind or to permit loose. So all of that language, forbid, permit, bind, loose, restrictive, permissive, is this binding and loosing notion that Jesus is saying, you have authority to do that. So the first case I want to look at is of divorce in the scriptures. So we get into the Jewish tradition of how this, this worked. Um, the passage is from Deuteronomy 24.1. And it's kind of a run-on sentence that leads in interesting directions, but I'll just read the, the first part. If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her, and sends her from the house. So this is just one part of the phrase. Um, and the rabbinic tradition would wrestle with this. Okay, well, what does displeasing mean? Or what does indecent mean? And around the time of Jesus, there were two famous rabbis that had two different schools of thought. Uh, Rabbi Shammai usually had a very restrictive or forbidding interpretation of the law. Um, so in this case, Shammai said, you can only give a certificate of divorce if there is adultery. So the indecency is sexual immorality of, of some sort. Now, Hillel was in favor of divorce for any reason, anything that's displeasing. So he's famous for saying, if, you, if your wife burns your toast, that is grounds for divorce. Uh, so you can see in this context that there's a, like a whole kind of discussion going on, and it's also very patriarchal, okay? so. The, the water they're swimming is, is talking about men. When do they get to divorce their wives? It's not talking about women. And you could see how this could lead to all kinds of injustices. Um, now, one of the, the redemptive kind of loving ways for Hillel in making divorce for any reason was he believed if you only made it for something sexually indecent is you would be shaming a woman uh, and making her unfit to be able to marry someone else. So in Jewish tradition, if you had a certificate of divorce, you were no longer married and could remarry. Um, there was no prohibition uh, against that. Now, this conversation, this backstory we see enters the New Testament, in Matthew 19.3, some Pharisees came to Jesus to test him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? So this question is like, do you agree with Hillel? 
And uh, Jesus, in this is very rarely kind of sides with Shammai, but in this case, he does. And Jesus also talks about remarriage. Now, most scholars believe he's, he, he's talking about a very specific case, which is in regards to Herod, who divorced his wife to marry his brother's wife. Um, and that's what got John the Baptist put in prison because he spoke against Herod being uh, uh, doing something absolutely ungodly and, Her and uh, John the Baptist lost his head over it. So some of this backstory even into this case is that the Pharisees are trying to trap Jesus in the same way and maybe get Jesus arrested and beheaded by Herod for speaking out on on his particular divorce and remarriage, which Jesus is saying, yeah, that's not okay. Now, what's interesting um, in, in this, this case is Paul binds and looses in a different way than Jesus. So uh, Paul and his congregations is starting to deal with the issue of of both men and women who happen to be in marriages where one of them converts to the way of Jesus and the other doesn't. And he's like, if your unbelieving spouse doesn't want to be married anymore, um, that's okay. But I want to try to encourage you to stick in a marriage where you can. So this is 1 Corinthians 7.15. The brother or sister is not bound in such circumstances. Um, so now Paul is, is, is both talking about men and women having permission to a divorce. Uh, and Paul doesn't just say, well, we have a word from Jesus. You, divorce is only okay if there is this exception, you know, sexual immorality. So Paul is more permissible in this case than even Jesus was. So Paul is taking responsibility for the authority of binding and loosing toward a case in his congregation. Um, so I put this on the, the spectrum of when is divorce permissible. And I want us uh, to look at it, ask yourself this question, and you, what do you what do you say if you want to engage in kind of this Jewish practice of binding and loosing in regards to the text? What do you say? Um, and here I'll put my myself in this. Um, I don't bind and loose in the same way Jesus did in that case, or even Paul. I would say it this way. When is divorce permissible? When is the most loving thing you can do? Sometimes divorce is the most loving thing. Um, and so permit it in that case. And, um, we've been a part of, uh, remarriages that have absolutely been spirit filled and, uh, manifests itself in love and it's wise action. And yes, absolutely. So here's where there's actual permission to take responsibility for this entrustment of authority to act in wise, loving ways that manifest itself uh, in, in love. Now, you know, 
I think the, the tradition that I really came from gets really nervous about that kind of stuff because we tended to see obedience as like, if you obey, it'll go okay, and I just want to follow the directions. Uh, and um, uh, Leah Everson shared last week on this that she had a seminary professor that had like this chart of <laughs> when it was okay, which ended up just being kind of humorous because you can't make a recipe for wisdom. And um, I think that's why Jesus is, is saying, I'm, I'm, in, I'm handing you the keys to learn how to cook and make wise meals. And um, to go back a couple weeks, I think this is what's really important. Well, what are the choir of voices that help, help us develop wisdom and discernment? It's not just one voice. There's the voice of scripture, there's a voice of our traditions and saints. There's the voice of the gathered community coming together to discern. There's the Holy Spirit and mystical encounters that, that move us in wisdom and love. There's my spirit and experience, life experience that, that plays into this. There's creation in the natural world of what we learn. There's science and education. The poor and oppressed have something uh, to say and teach us about these things, especially when we just consider how divorce is often um, used as a power move of, a, of, injustment, of injustice against those who have less, less power. And so we have to make um, decisions that actually bring more justice and power, especially to women. Um, other faith traditions teach us something. So here in bringing the Jewish tradition in, it helps us gain understanding to Jesus's words about binding and loosing to Christians who that's often language that they have no idea what it's talking about. Um, strangers and scapegoats. Um, Donna says, yet it's all because of what the women did wrong. I roll, yes, thank you. And why we need a choir of discernment and not simply following the Bible, because a lot of times the Bible is a library that preserves a lot of things that are, are not wise um, and need rebuking. And what I love about, again, the Jewish tradition is even within the sacred library, you have books that challenge one another. So Ruth is, is an argument against Ezra and Nehemiah. So Ezra, Nehemiah is a very forbidding kind of, uh, you know, I'd say early pharisaical view. There's no mixed marriages. Send your Moabite wives away. And Ruth is this lovely kind of whimsical story of a Moabite woman who then hears the line of his grandmother to King David, right? So the books themselves challenge one another. It's a preservation of the debate. Okay, I want to do another case study here, and this is the Sabbath, which is very prevalent in the Gospels, all of the Sabbath controversies that Jesus gets himself involved in. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy is one of the Ten Commandments, Exodus 28. And, you know, there is so many rules about, well, what does it mean to honor the Sabbath? Again, Shammai takes a very 
restrictive and forbidding position on what you can and can't do on the Sabbath day. And one of the questions was, are you allowed to pray for the sick on the Sabbath? Now, Shammai said no, and Hillel said yes. And there's a whole rationale of, uh, around these reasons, which I think is, is pretty fascinating. Shammai says the Sabbath day is a sign of Olam Abba, which sometimes in English, in the Gospel of John, is, is translated as eternal life or life in the age to come. So the Sabbath is a sign of life in the age to come. And then you, you say, okay, well, in life in the age to come, is there sickness and disease in the life in the age to come? No. Therefore, we want to practice the future on this day. So we're, we kind of like pretend there's no sickness. So no prayers for the sick on the Sabbath. Six days you can pray for the sick. On the Sabbath day, no, it's a sign of the time when there'll be no sickness. For Hillel, there, he, he said, that's a heavy load to put on people who have sick loved ones. Where you can't make, it's just not loving to say when someone's sick that you can't pray for their healing, no matter what day it is. So you have this in mind, and then I, I want us to, to look at just one of the instances in which Jesus heals a man's hand that's shriveled on the Sabbath, and he's in the synagogue. And Jesus reframes the question this way. Instead of it, you know, are you allowed to pray for the sick or not? Jesus said, I ask you, which is lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to destroy it? Jesus reframes the question. Well, is it lawful to do good on the Sabbath? Is it lawful to save life on the Sabbath? Um or is it liable to do evil? You know, so it's it's kind of the uh, a trick binary, right? And then Jesus heals the man's hand, which what I think is fascinating in this context is Jesus endorses the sign of Sabbath as Olam Abba in the life and the age to come. There's no disease or sickness, and so let me give witness to that by healing this this man, and then in some ways agrees with Hillel that um, this is an act of love that is permitted. So it is, I, I just, I, I find Jesus operating in a very brilliant paradigm shifting or say a rupturing um, Sabbath in a, in a sacred way. It's a holy rupture. Now I want to see how the disciples of Jesus take this even further. So honor the Sabbath day and keep it holy. You've got Paul saying kind of irreverent things like this. One person considers one day more sacred than the other. Another considers every day alike. Each of them should be fully convinced in their own mind. What? Like, how did Paul get away with saying something like this other than he's taking responsibility for the authority entrusted? Like, we have a whole group of people following Jesus that didn't grow up with the Ten Commandments. And we've got a whole group of people who did. 
And there's something really important and sacred about Sabbath observance, but it also is pointing beyond just a particular day of the week. And this is uh, the writer of Hebrews kind of takes the idea of Sabbath and just, just, you know, transcends it entirely. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. Now we who have believed enter that rest. So chapter four of Hebrews is all about Sabbath rest and how it's evidence of the kingdom of God now. So the Sabbath is today. It's today. It's today. Have you experienced the promise rest of God in your life today. So there's this witness that Sabbath is actually a sign of shared union. So it goes beyond a practice that started one day a week to something that we're, we're invited to enter into every day of the week. Now, how did how did this, this go? You see, we're like, we're going way beyond following the rules to making an entirely um, different meal but that is able to nourish us in a completely new, sustaining way. And I'm gonna say that doesn't stop with the last book of the New Testament. So that authority to cook meals that actually produce wisdom and love, we've gotta take responsibility to do that and not just take 2,000 year old meals stick it in the microwave, and expect that that's going to be nourishing today. The library is a witness and a voice that then helps us discern the Spirit of God at work today. All right. So this brings us into some ways that I think the church has not been good at main preserving the arguments or the debates. So the great schism of 1054 CE led to the split of what became the Roman Catholic and the Eastern Orthodox churches. And among, you know, a whole vast of issues, including most of it like political disagreements, it was an irreconcilable disagreement between serving leaven or unleavened bread for communion. Now, um, you know, that feels kind of silly a thousand, you know, years since then, but there was an irreconcilable difference. We can't have leaven and unleavened bread in communion. And I think of, can you imagine now when we're doing communion virtually on the internet and, you know, some of our conversations are what is the strangest communion elements that you've used, whether it's a bagel and coffee or Doritos and Mountain Dew. Um, you see that like honing in on this as something that splits a communion is crazy nonsense and prevents wisdom and goes back into like, oh, if we get the communion bread right, um, we'll get godliness right or something crazy like that. And I want to, you know, suggest that our current great schism in the communion of churches all around today have to do about LGBTQ plus issues of inclusion, ordination, gay marriage. Um, we're not arguing about communion bread, but there 
is irreconcilable differences around gay marriage, uh, ordination of priests, uh, inclusion of transgender and non-binary uh, people. So this becomes our current disagreement. And what I, what I want to do in the, the moments we have together, and I, there's, there's a lot here, and so I'll try to be as, as brief as we, as we can for one Sunday. Um, but this, this spectrum and uh, these parameters, you know, has been a 10-year process for me to try to understand the different, like, uh, paradigms within the Christian communion. And why I say within the Christian communion is not to say that all of these paradigms are equal. They are not. But I feel like too often, like the Eastern and Roman Catholic churches, is we excommunicate each other um, rather than holding difference and trying to see how those differences can actually further wisdom and love and challenge our own positions um, to grow in wisdom and transformation. And the, the other reason I, I do this is because it's a spectrum that I'm, I've been a part of. So I can trace my own history as one who has followed Jesus that at some point in time, I've existed in a traditional forbidding position, a non-affirming position, an accepting position, an affirming position, and a liberating position. Like, there's been a point in time where David has existed um, in, in each of these, these realities. So for this morning, I'm, we're going to do one scripture, which is Leviticus 18.22, which is one of the Old Testament texts that has um, some kind of prohibition about a same-sex behavior of some kind. And um, next week, we're going to look at Romans 1. The, the weeks after that, we'll look at the other New Testament passages, um, and then we'll, we'll cultivate a theology of, of marriage. And also, we'll kind of finish this series in June with... Um, queer theology and virtue, which um, is, is another holy rupture that I, I think in, invites you to a level of transformation that um, I think is, is deeply powerful and liberating. But to, to get there, I just want to give a few verses in lead up. There's more before this that has all kinds of sexual prohibitions, Okay. Leviticus 18, starting in verse 16, do not have sexual relations with your brother's wife. That would dishonor your brother. So again, you know, trigger warning, it would dishonor your brother. Uh, so again, see how the woman is not even in view. Um, and that the a lot of these cultural... Um, moral domains that operating is about honor and shame. And then there's going to be a lot of patriarchal sensibilities that like dictate what's, what's going on, what's going on here in Leviticus. 
do not have sexual relations with both a woman and her daughter, do not have sexual relations with either her son's daughter or her daughter's daughter, they are close relatives. That is wickedness. Do not take your wife's sister as a rival wife and have sexual relations with her while your wife is living. Now, this is kind of interesting when you read Genesis, since uh, Leah and uh, Rachel are sisters that one of the patriarchs <laughs> takes, and you see the rivalry between the two of them. Do not approach a woman to have sexual relationship relations during the uncleanness of her monthly period. Do not have sexual relations with your neighbor's wife and defile yourself with her. Do not give any of your children to be sacrificed to Molech, for you must not profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman, that is detestable. And then you have this kind of summary verse at the end. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I am going to drive out before you became defiled. Now, that whole summary at the end, as we've been dismantling our settler, colonial, white supremacist religion version of Christianity, is pretty important to interrogate the idea of like, the indigenous people there are gross, therefore you can um, drive them out of the land, is, is kind of the, the same rationale that um, white settlers used in driving out the native peoples. You see that same kind of logic going on from uh, right-wing zealot Jews in evicting Palestinians from East Jerusalem homes that they've lived in for hundreds of years. Um, uh, Western Bank, Gaza, that apartheid situation, you could say has biblical um, connections that we need to interrogate um, in order to grow in wisdom and not just make meals that actually um, oppress people and don't manifest themselves in love. All right, so that's, that's, the, that's the background. Here's one question. You know, do you permit or forbid gay marriage? And then what's, what's the reasoning when you, you come around this verse in Leviticus 18.22? Do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. And first I'll use this paradigm of forbidding, non-affirming, accepting, affirming, liberating, or say restrictive, bind, permissive, loose, just in, in Judaism today. So roughly you can kind of organize, um, this is too reductionistic, but orthodox, conservative, reform Judaism. Most orthodox Jewish congregations would have a forbidding or non-affirming position when, it, when, you know, do you allow gay marriage? Conservative congregations, interesting enough, have, have, have an accepting position to gay marriage. Uh, some are, are affirming. Some might be uh, non-affirming. Uh, but the, the interested, you know, if you read rabbinic commentary and conservative 
circles. One, they would say, well, this doesn't address women at all. So lesbians can get married. And um, then they trace the Talmudic tradition around, well, what is a man lying like with a woman mean? And there's a noticing, uh, I'm going to get in the weeds here, but there's a noticing that within this particular command, there's not a fence built around Torah. And what that means is with a lot of laws, it takes the law and then um, builds a, a a fence around it so you don't get near the prohibition. So with Sabbath observance, there's a lot of fences so you don't accidentally dishonor the Sabbath. But with this one, uh, the commentary is we didn't want to restrict men being around men because those relationships a lot of times were very intimate and together. In the, in the ways that you see a lot of fences built around men and women and how they were separated so as to not allow any kind of sexual immorality to take place. So for conservatives, they, 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 they uh, recognize that there was really, what it meant was there was no anal sexuality allowed and that's what this verse wrote, was referring to. Now, my, my parents are in town from Pennsylvania. We haven't seen each other in an hour and a, you know, a year and a half. And so I think you're, Jim and Linda, you're watching with my wife, Sarah. You all are welcome right now for how I just made this really awkward. Um, but a conservative rabbi will do a gay marriage for two men and then in their counseling would just say, you know, our tradition doesn't allow anal sexual intimacy, but anything else is okay. And just so you know, I'm not coming over to check on you. So that's a rabbinic conservative that is accepting and even affirming of gay marriage. Reformed Judaism sees this is uh, not a command that is instructive at all for covenanting loving relationships. So I'd say a reformed rabbi would shift the question just like Jesus did about the Sabbath. Well, is it lawful to do good or evil? Uh, we would shift the question to, is it lawful to form covenants of fidelity, trust, and love? Well, yeah. Well, therefore, good. Let's encourage uh, gay people to form covenants of fidelity, trust, and love. So this would be uh, one of the ways that uh, Jewish communities kind of hold difference around this question with one particular uh, verse in the Torah. I want to start now uh, with the, the Christian tradition with, I'm going to start in the middle of the spectrum, okay? So this would be an accepting position, okay? And I'm, I'm going... To, uh, I can't guarantee this, but I would put Eugene Peterson, I would name as a pastor who operated in an accepting zone in regards to gay marriage. Okay. He was a Presbyterian pastor for, I don't know, three decades um, and is most known for the translation of the Bible called The Message. And Jonathan Merritt did this interview with Eugene Peterson in 2017, kind of a, a year before he died. 
And he asked this question, has your view on this would be gay marriage or uh, homosexuality changed over the years? What is your position on the morality of same-sex relationships? Now, the, the, the Presbyterian at this time was going through a huge rupture, okay? Uh, the Presbyterian church has split and formed, you know, two different denominations over this question. Peterson replied, I wouldn't have said this 20 years ago, but now I know a lot of people who are gay and lesbian, and they seem to have a good, as good a spiritual life as I do. So what this, this is reflecting on, there's the Holy Spirit's in them just as the Holy Spirit's in me. I think that kind of debate about lesbians and gays might be over. People who disapprove of it, they'll probably just go to another church. So we're in a transition, and I think it's a transition for the best, for the good. I don't think it's something that you can parade, but it's not a right or wrong thing as far as I'm concerned. So it's not like celebrating. I don't think Peterson would put a rainbow flag outside the church, uh, but he's accepting. So then this question. If you were pastoring today and a gay couple in your church who were Christians of good faith asked you to perform their same-sex wedding ceremony, is that something you would do? And Peterson replied, yes. Well, when this interview came out, there was a huge uprising, backlash. The Southern Baptist Convention had like a huge statement against Eugene Peterson. Lifeway Books, which is owned by Southern Baptists, uh, said they were going to pull all pull all of Eugene Peterson's books and the message translation. They wouldn't sell them anymore. You know, they were boycotting Peterson until he renounces what he just said, which a couple days later, Peterson did. Um, he said, upon further reflection, I, you know, would not perform uh, a, a marriage in, in, a, in a church today and Lifeway forgave him and kept selling his books. Uh, now, to me, that whole case is is pretty interesting in a few ways. And I'm, I'm going to put this slide up. There's another case study here, but uh, focus on the bottom of the slide on this accepting. So the moral posture, accepting, the moral judgment is accommodation. So you're making accommodation space for. The moral analogy I use in this position is divorce and remarriage. And if you grew up in a conservative congregation, um, you know, in the 80s and 90s, this was a huge debate of whether a church would, if someone was divorced, would you remarry them? Like, is that permitted because Jesus you know, again, probably talking about Herod and his wife said, if you're divorced and you remarry, you're committing adultery. Um, but what happened was Christians and congregations got divorced and then they were getting remarried. And you realize some of these remarriages were really good, <laughs> like the Holy Spirit's in them. There's the fruit of love. And so how could we call that bad? But then you're wrestling with the Bible. And so you make an accommodation. Maybe this isn't God's best that you got divorced and remarriage, but it's redemptive. And I think people in an accepting position would probably say, I don't know if gay marriage is what God intended, but I think 
we can make an accommodation because it seems like the Holy Spirit's at work and isn't discriminating. So neither should we. Um, so some within accepting would say we affirm civil marriages, which this would be Pope Francis. I would put Pope Francis in an accepting position. Um, he just uh, came out a few years ago, but then reiterated that like is Catholics should affirm civil marriages, um, even though the sacred marriage um, won't happen in the church. Um, there's a kind of accommodation going on. Now, the other example I want to use here is World Vision in 2014, uh, one of the country's largest Christian relief organization that does food and development all around the world, announced that it was changing its employment policy to allow for gay Christians to be in legally recognized same-sex marriages. Uh, the World Vision president, Rich Stern, stated that the very narrow policy change should be viewed by others as symbolic, not of compromise, but of unity. So what is World Vision trying to do? It's trying to hold a spectrum. We've got people on staff that have got a forbidding or a non-affirming view. We've got, we got people of, on staff who are accepting, affirming, and liberating, or, and even have gotten married. They're gay Christians, and we, wanna, we love them, and we want them to still be able to work here. Um, so we want to accommodate that. Well, huge backlash again. Um, and then within two days, World Vision changed their policy back and apologized to all their forbidding donors um, and said they had made a mistake and no, we really do believe in the authority of scripture and um, we weren't going to allow this. Well, this is, this is devastating. You know, think about those who are on staff like, wow, my organization in a conservative evangelical frame is going to stick their neck out for, for me. Um, and then they don't when it comes down to the money. Um, and this is the same thing that happened to Eugene Peterson. And people in an accepting position tend to operate in forbidding and non-affirming spaces. And the accommod accommodation just feels like compromise. Um, and usually get bullied um, by those on the more restrictive end of the spectrum, and then kind of seen as not brave by affirming and liberating people. Um, so that, that's a case. All right, so real quick, I want to go through um, kind of some of these others. And as we get to traditional and non-affirming and their like backlash to accepting, this, this is an example I usually like to give. In Genesis chapter two, marriage is illustrated between one man and one woman. And that's usually what's held up as biblical marriage, even though that's unsustainable through if you read the Bible. That, however, those championing biblical authority and traditional marriage have learned to accommodate the polygamy of Abraham just 10 chapters later without that redefining their marital ideal based in the Bible. King Solomon is still included in most Sunday school curriculum, even though he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. 
This is often done without a single thought as to whether our children might get the wrong idea about marriage from Solomon when we hold him up as the wisest king that has ever lived. So, you know, if you grew up in these spaces, and I'm going to say myself, I used to use this um, line. If your response to an inquisitive child is God allowed polygamy, because it was culturally acceptable at the time. God made an accommodation because of culture. Then perhaps a pause is warranted before pulling Eugene Peterson books off the shelves. So accepting people still, I think, would operate in, in, a, in a way of understanding the Bible as kind of the single source of authority, not a choir. Um, so I, I personally don't live in that space anymore but find it really hard to justify their accommodation. But I would say if, if I'd say 10 years ago, I would have considered myself accepting. Um, and uh, the, the, this would have been my response at the time. All right. I want to be sensitive to the time. Again, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. That is detestable. The tradi traditional, and I use traditional there just because um, this mostly happens in fundamentalist spaces, but they usually claim traditional as the name for their position. And so I, I want to honor that even as I think that needs to be interrogated because I don't believe this question was actually wrestled with in the scriptures in the way that we wrestle with it now. Um, it's a new question, not necessarily an old one. But it's, it's forbidding, and what they see as forbidden here is both uh, male and female uh, gayness. So homosexuality is being forbidden here, including homosexual behavior or marriage. So it, this, this is like a big umbrella that includes everything. The moral judgment is of that kind of sexuality is a perversion. The moral analogy is pedophilia. And the reason reasoning would go like this. If you are sexually attracted to children as an adult, that's a sign that something is wrong and you need help. Um, you need conversion. You need repentance. Um, it's not just that the acting on those is wrong. The feelings are wrong. Yeah, um, so you, you need a complete conversion um, from that and being liberated from those feelings and the behavior. And that, that analogy is then made to, to see homosexuality in the same way. It's a perversion. Um, it's sin, and it's a sign that you need help. Um, so this posture would be in favor of conversion therapies um, and believe that you can be freed from your gayness. Like that's what redemption looked like is you are now straight. Um, the next posture is non-affirming. Non-affirming churches and people make a distinction between being gay and gay behavior. So you would have, like, maybe you've heard something like, you can't help how you feel, but you can help how you act. 
this would be a non-affirming stance. Um, and the, the next paradigm that I want to add to this restrictive permissive is, is your paradigm around uh, homosexuality, it's a sin, or do you see it more as a sickness, or do you see homosexuality as a healthy variation within the human family? Um, and the analogy here would be left-handedness. So just like people with left, who are left-hand dominant are about 10% of the population. It's a minority, but it's not a disease. It's not a sickness, even though it was viewed that way. Um, it was even viewed before as like a sin and a sign of God's punishment, left-handedness was. Um, but now we, we recognize left-handedness is just a normal variation within the human family. And um, same with being gender nonconformity or bisexuality or homosexuality. It's a normal variation, though a minority variation within the human family. Sin, sickness, or health. Non-affirming people tend to move from sin to sickness. So there's a prohibition about a specific behavior, but not about being gay. Um, and then there's some ambivalence here about maybe maybe being gay is kind of like if there's like a genetic disposition to alcoholism. So it's not it could be not great, or it could be more like a genetic variation, like Down syndrome. There's nothing that a person can control here, and. Um, and so we've got to operate um, with a new loving mode. Um, just like in this tradition, non-affirming and forbidding postures usually have like a high value and you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord in order to be saved. Well, what if someone can't talk or has a learning disability or, you know, uh, will never be able to speak? They'll probably make some kind of accommodation at that 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 point, and here's where that non-affirming space kind of has some room um, to grow. You know, at at this point, I just want to show a few books here, and usually you can tell by titles what's going on. So. Um, this one, What the Bible Says About Sexual Orientation and Change, Transforming Homosexuality. Um, the Ford is by Albert Muller, um, who is Southern Baptist Seminary President. Um, this would be a forbidding posture that's promoting conversion and change. So you don't have to be a homosexual anymore. Pray and repent and um, you'll be able to be straight, hopefully. So that's the goal. Um, People to be loved by Preston Sprinkle. Uh, why homosexuality is not just an issue is making a distinguishing, is distinguishing being gay to a prohibited gay behavior. So this would be a non-affirming stance. Um, sometimes it's called your church should be welcoming of gay people, but unaffirming of uh, same-sex marriage.
Wesley Hill is a gay Christian. He wrote his, this book, Wash and Waiting, um, would be non-affirming of same-sex marriage, but does a lot to help, say, non-affirming congregations and maybe even forbidding congregations to start recognizing gay people as not somehow flawed, not God-haters, um, full of the Holy Spirit. And uh, he's... Uh, He's an either a newer Old Testament scholar in, in the seminary. He usually comes to all non-affirming conferences to be like the gay person that can help affirm their non-affirming position. Um, Andrew Marin writes a lot um, to kind of help churches become more accepting. Um, so I put him in this accepting space. He's probably more affirming, but he does a lot of work in non-affirming spaces to help people make some loving accommodations. Um, those can be there. All right. Real quick. Sorry, real quick. We'll see. Um, I want to look at a, an affirming and liberating postures just in, in closing to get this full spectrum, at least in, in uh, one, one Sunday, right? Uh, both accepting, uh, uh, affirming, and liberating positions would understand what's happening in Leviticus as largely a patriarchal honor-shame lens that we need to in interrogate and move on from. So... Um, they would translate this first with this commentary. You shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is detestable to the patriarchal understanding of reality. Um, and so patriarchy still informs most of our sensibilities and even our disgust responses. And um, since men are seen as higher than women, you know, the worst thing that a man can do is like act like a woman and that's some of like what gayness represents um, and that's disgusting, that's gross, that's being soft, um, which we'll look at in a, in, a, in a few weeks. But in the affirming standpoint, it's, it sees sexual intimacy is a sign of covenantal love. The covenant of marriage is what makes sex sacred and holy. So just like there's heterosexual sexual immorality and there's homosexual sexual immorality. What makes sex holy and sacred is the marriage covenant, is the covenantal commitment. And so, yes, we should encourage gay people to marry. That's like the one appropriate place for sexual intimacy and expression. Um, so the moral judgment here is consecration. Sex was meant to be consecrated in covenants. That's what makes it sacred and holy. The moral analogy here is it's a sacrament. Um, so gay and straight couples can experience the grace and love of God in these covenants, and it can be discipling. Like um, uh, marriage uh, can be um, a refining of of love. And um, we want to make that open and accessible to all people, whether gay or straight. 
So there's an affirmation. It's not, it's more than an accommodation. No, this is good and healthy. Um, and the moral direction uh, for gay people is to get married. Uh, don't have one-off encounters. Sex was made for marriage. And so it's also, we've made a place for you. So then this is, again, taking responsibility for the authority of binding and loosing. loosing. So the movement from accepting to affirming is one from kind of a sickness accommodation to, no, this is healthy and good. All right. And finally, liberating. Um, liberating congregations would make really the inclusion, acceptance, affirmation of gay people, gay marriage, uh, non-binary people, transgender people, like our full-bodied members uh, and give evidence to the full um, spectrum of divine life. Um, you kind of use Galatians 3.28 as inclusive of this sexual spectrum. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male nor and female, for you are all one in Christ. So the moral judgment here is one of celebration. Um, you are healthy in who God made you to be, and there's healthy, loving ways of working out your sexuality. Um, the moral analogy here is left-handedness. Um, your, your sexuality is a normal variation, and we can see evidence of that in the animal kingdom. So the, this is kind of the encyclopedia of uh, animal homosexuality, if for lack of a better word, that's what the sciences are, are, are calling it. Um, animal homosexuality and, and natural diversity there's over 450 species that demonstrate normal variation of homosexual behavior. And there's over 20 species that actually form monogamous homosexual pairs that adopt um, like unattended children or in cases of birds will... Uh, two male geese that'll adopt abandoned nests and sit on it and raise the chicks, um, cheetahs that adopt um, stranded cubs uh, and are like lifelong partners. So there, there's like, we see evidence that even in creation, this just is like a, a healthy variation of life. So uh, liberating tends to see a lot of their ministry is to undo the harm that has been caused in religious spaces. So um, liberating people believe that forbidding congregations are the ones that need conversion therapy to convert from their sin sickness mindset to understand health um, and need and want to make spaces where LGBTQ siblings are fully affirmed and not shamed in who they, they, they are. And the difference between liberating and affirming congregations is liberating congregations tend to see how marriage has been used patriarchally in oppressive, sexually abusive situations. 
So liberating congregation is going to want to disciple people beyond a marriage ceremony um, to have mutually consensual sexual intimacy, that there cannot be a a power um, dynamic that's inequitable when it comes to our sexuality. Um, So um, I would say some good books around this for uh, parents raising kids trying to figure out sexual ethics um, that aren't patriarchal. Um, These Are Our Bodies by Leslie Choplin and Jenny Beaumont um, is really wonderful curriculum. Uh, For adults who are trying to recover from purity culture, Nadia Boltz Weber's book Shameless kind of operates in this liberating space. Um, I also really appreciate Queer Virtue by Reverend Elizabeth Edmond. Um, uh, Here's kind of an introduction to uh, queer theology and what the lens that queer people have that can actually help illuminate the full spectrum of the body of Christ. So also wonderful resource. Um, Books that kind of maybe operate from moving from accepting to affirming, um, unclobber. I'm looking for, where did all my books go? Uh, Here we go. Unclobber uh, by Colby Martin. Uh, he's a friend of mine. I, I appreciate that. Him a lot. Um, uh, what God Has Joined Together, The Christian Case for Gay Marriage, operates in this affirming space. This is an older work. This is like in 94, but um, helpful and relevant. If you want a more thorough read that's still accessible, I, I recommend Bible, Gender, and Sexuality by James Brownson. So this would be an affirming um, uh, uh, position. And I think it's, it's pretty thorough and helps bring some, some good understanding to bear. So those are uh, a variety of resources in this, um, in this space. Um, here's the whole slide you know if you want to take a screenshot here it is permit or forbid restrictive permissive from traditional forbidding non-affirming accepting affirming liberating do you have a sin paradigm a sickness paradigm a health paradigm and then uh kind of a uh a a table here of the moral posture, forbidding, affirming, accepting, affirming, liberating, the moral judgment, perversion, prohibition, accommodation, consecration, celebration, the moral analogies, pedophilia, alcoholism, divorce, remarriage, sacrament, left-handedness, the moral direction, repent, convert, celibacy, Civil union or marriage, a marriage covenant, mutual consent in sexual ethics. Um, so, again, this uh, diagram represents about 10 years of my life working to tr- try to synthesize all of that. And I 
If I can be proud of that, I am. I think it's needed work. Um, and here in, in closing, any question regarding the Bible and LGBTQ people is a matter of discernment, not a matter of obedience. There is no, you just follow the directions and you get the right answer is, is misguided. The goal is not, did you follow orders? The goal is wisdom that manifests itself in love. And I invite you to take responsibility for the authority that Jesus is entrusting with you in these, these questions of discernment and life that are, are rupturing congregations, families, and people. I'll close with this and get your comments here before communion. Again, thanks for spending an extra long morning on a, on a holiday weekend with me. I know um, that was a lot to digest, but I kind of wanted to try to accomplish it in one sitting. Galatians 5, 6, the only thing that matters is faith expressing itself in love. And you know what I would say with all of these different dimensions within the commission Christian communion, the question for me as I moved along was, does this actually produce love? Does this produce love? Does this thinking, does this reasoning actually manifest itself in love? And am I able to discern that love is happening or am I closed off to it? Oh man, you've got great comments and I, I've, I've neglected it um, uh, for so long. All of these authors are white males. Yes, not calling you out, but definitely calling us to broaden our reading base collectively. All of the ones on the left side of the spectrum to middle are, which should tell you something, um, the, all the, the, the later ones um, are not. And I think that should tell us something as well. Uh, but Donette, that it's it's a good word to be called out because I would say ten years ago, I only read white males, so I want to own that, confess that, and grow up um, from that. So thank you for calling that out. Um, we just said to ourselves while listening, we're so thankful to be at a church that's having such an open and honest conversation about this. So, so grateful. Thanks, Jason. Side note, seems to be that patriarchy keeps coming up over and over and over and a central problem as playing a central role in so much of our bad theology. I, I would say yes to that. And when combined with imperial logic, it's really devastating. Uh, yes, uh, well, all in, all in good, good nature, Donette. Thanks for, um, for that comment as well. Unfortunately, the history of theological education has meant that there's still a huge gap between the number of men and the number of women who engage in theological writing and have presence in theological discussions. Uh, folks should add Sarah Coakley and Catherine S uh, Sonderager to their list. 
Um, thank you. I will do that as well. I'm not, I'm not familiar with them. Uh, Blue Baby's Pink, hugely helpful to me. That is a wonderful podcast of, of, uh, a lovely gay gentleman who grew up in a very conservative church in the South and telling his story. Um, it is really a wonderful, wonderful one. So look that up. Blueberry, blueberries, blue babies, pink. Yes. Uh, Megan says second this, uh, yes. And we don't need to limit our learning to proper formal theologians. And we have much to learn from a variety of cultures and how they have historically and currently navigate same sex relationships. Folks all along the sex gender spectrum, except etc. So many teachers. Yep, Donette, thank you for that. Let's expand our choir um, beyond like the first three in the list is um, really helpful, again, to developing wisdom that manifests itself in love. Kevin, I third this. I recently listened to Blue, Baby, Blue Baby's Pink. I don't know why I can't say this. It was very helpful and easy to listen to. Fantastic. Uh, Church, I love you. Thanks for the conversation and um, for moving it forward. I appreciate you all so much. And no, um, this was a lot for a morning. So if you're still with us, I'm grateful. I'll uh, pause and now invite you to get some elements, either leavened or unleavened, um, to bring us to the meal where Jesus can remake us um, and heal us and transform us. I look forward to celebrating this meal with you today. Amen. Would you take in a deep breath? <sighs> 